Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merc and fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo Cold-blooded with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss This is That Got Me Thinking and I'm Ellie Newman This week, I've been thinking about being bound, bound to others and bound to our stories, the stories we tell about ourselves and those we are in relationship with. I've been thinking about identity, how it forms, and the consequences, good and bad, that evolve from its formation. And I've been thinking about fathers, marriage, divorce, and single narrow beds. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Nicole Krauss. She's the author of the novels Forest Dark, Great House, The History of Love, and Man Walks Into Our Room. She is currently the inaugural writer-in-residence at Columbia University's Mind, Brain, and Behavior Institute. Welcome, Nicole, and thank you so much for joining us today, and that got me thinking. Thank you for having me. So I want to just start off um, asking, what is the Columbia's Mind, Brain, and Behavior Institute? Because it sounds like awesome. <laughs> I'm wondering what it, <laughs> what it means to be their inaugural writer-in-residence. Sure. Um, so the Zuckerman Institute, as it's called, or which is Columbia's Mind, Brain, and Behavior Institute, is a collection of neuroscientists, um, people who are thinking about the brain, who are coming at it from different directions. So there are people coming from um, psychology, from genetics, from more computational realms of neuroscience. And they all have their labs in this absolutely beautiful new building designed by Renzo Piano um, up on 125th Street in New York City. And the idea um, for the Institute came from two Nobel Prize winning neuroscientists, Richard Axel and Eric Kandel, and basically wanted to you know, bring all of these scientists who are working on different subjects, but all working in the brain together so there could be more of a cross-disciplinary conversation. Not, I guess cross-disciplinary is an exaggeration since they're all the same discipline, but more, more conversation between scientists working on these things. And last year, for the first time, they decided to have artists in residence. So they had a jazz musician and a visual artist. And this year, um, they have another of each of those. And I am the first writer in residence there. Uh. And it simply means that I get the enormous luck of getting to sit and talk to neuroscientists about their work, their fabulously fascinating work, each of, you know, each lab doing completely different things. But as time passes, you know, a larger picture of the mind and brain emerges. Um, to the intrepid ah, and they get to talk to you how um, fantastic and right and in exchange for that I talk to them about writing the creative process my own work and so I've delivered um, some talks to them there I have a, a class of, of um, some of the postdocs who are working on writing and using their science and transforming that into a sort of fictional fictional realm um, so it's it's really been an yeah. absolute privilege, like a spectacular oh, privilege. It just sounds um, fantastic. A renaissance, modern day yeah. think tank. <laughs> like, it's so yeah, good. Yeah, and I think because, because for so, so many years now, I've been thinking about m- memory and um, how that works in, in a life. Um, there are a lot of scientists there working on memory. And so that's there's been an, there's been enormous affinity there um, and resonance I think which has been nice. 
You've got a wonderful new book, uh, To Be a Man, a collection of short fiction, and you've already received incredible praise for it so far. The New York Times refers to you as one of America's most important novelists and an international literary sensation. NPR says you are a fiction pioneer. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel says you are the bravest and most original of your generation. And The Guardian says you write like an angel. So I'm reading these, um, thinking all true after I've read the book, but I'm also wondering what, since so much of the book is about um, identity and um, others' ideas of of who you are and who you should be. I'm just wondering what that kind of praise does to your sense of self and and your writing process, which is you know typically a very intimate experience. Well, there's been a lot of evolution in in that. I think that as a younger writer, I started out. Um, publishing my fiction at a very young age. I mean, I started publishing poetry when I was even younger, but um, like still in like 19 or 20. And then I wrote my first novel when I was 25 and it came out the following year. And so I've kind of grown up in some ways um, in the literary public eye, which has been wonderful in some sense because I always knew that um, what I love to do, I was going to be able to do for my work and my livelihood. But it also has meant that um, I've, I had to learn quickly all kinds of tools to protect my sense of freedom, my sense of playfulness, my willingness to take risks, both emotional and um, technical. And I think there was a sort of turning point probably after I published my second novel, which was the history of love. And that, because that novel um, it was published all over the world and it got so much attention, both good and bad. And I, I sort of had to decide at that point to, to find a way for all of that. What's ultimately background noise, not to reach me when I returned to my study to write, because of course, both things are problematic. Criticism is problematic for obvious reasons, but praise is equally problematic because, of course, you're fearful of dis- disappointing <laughs> afterwards. And so I really had to learn by, you know, 30 or so, age 30 or so, like what it is to just put all of that aside and to learn how to insist on my freedom my playfulness, my um, desire to find pleasure in my work, to not stick to the old things that I know how to do well or I've done before, but to go for the things that are challenging, that are going to be original for to me. Um, so that's been a long process, but um, this is my fifth book and I'm now 46. So I guess I've been publishing for almost 20 years, and um, I, I'm a lot steadier in all of that. Honestly, it almost doesn't reach me anymore. I know that's strange to say, but I developed um, a pretty sturdy structure to protect my writing life. It's, it's not doesn't seem strange, really. It seems like it's yeah, sep- you've you've realized like it's separate from you. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, 
Is your process to writing short stories different from when you are writing um, a full-length novel? Yes, absolutely. So um, I tend to write my novels without any sort of plan. So they're not executions of an idea. They're just really, um, they're almost improvisations, although that's that sounds extreme because um, they're improvisations that happen over many years and I'm going back and forth and reading over the work and changing things as I go. But all of the books are written in exactly the order of pages that you read them. So, which is to say that I don't know what's going to happen any more than the reader knows. Maybe I have an inkling, maybe I have a design in my mind, but the writing of the novel is a process of absolute discovery for me. And I couldn't write it any other way. I would simply be bored I would feel that I was leading the reader along on a leash. It, it would feel inauthentic to me, the process. But what that means is that for a couple of years that I'm writing those novels, I'm in the kind of suspended animation of not knowing whether they're going to work, whether they're going to come together or not. And add to that the, the fact that structurally, the last three novels have been quite complex. So they're polyphonic, which means there are multiple voices that are weaving together to form the, the whole, the larger narrative. So I have to keep all of this parts aloft and make them work and come together. So it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a long and complex and demanding process. Whereas a short story for me, it isn't that they're necessarily written faster, although some of them are. There are a couple in the book that came out very, very quickly. But there are many stories um, in the collection that I started just as like uh, in between novels, like in between Great House and Forest Dark, which is my last novel, or you know, at some point along the way, I would I started lots of things in search for a new novel. And some of those things I didn't want to turn to novels, but they wouldn't quite go away and so they would be there in the background or on my computer home screen and I would sometimes revisit them maybe a few paragraphs um, maybe some pages just a voice a character that had life in it that would ref that refused to fade and so sometimes those openings would sit there for years and I would I wrote a whole novel and I would return to them and so it's definitely the process is initially shorter but it's just that they um, there's not the same anxiety, I suppose, of something so large needing to fly off the ground. <laughs> you know, what happens if it crashes? If a short story doesn't work, it's okay. You you know, it's just a short story. You, can, you haven't put that, you know, you haven't put years into it necessarily. Um, and I found I could take more risks maybe with certain voices that I wouldn't want to necessarily sustain for a novel. Um, but it's strange work because you have to hold the thread of a short story very taut and you have to almost like how can I put it you have to land the ending the way an ice skater <laughs> lands an ending it has, to, it has to be perfect um and so it has its own challenges does there tend to be more of a purposefulness of expression or predetermined perspective that you're writing about when you approach a short story or or not no, it's the same. It's the same process of inventing as I go, um, learning as I go, responding to the sentences and the characters as they develop. 
So let's talk a little bit about the, the stories. The book is titled To Be a Man, and yet in, in the majority of the stories, um, the story evolves from a female narrator, the female's perspective. Um, did that just evolve, or was that that intended? So I, when I um, decided to make a collection of short stories, um, I went to my publisher um, with a little bit of my last novel, Forest Dark, and a few published stories. And I said, I'd like to write this novel, and I'd like to put together a collection of stories. And what happens at that time is that a, your publisher will ask you in that proposal for titles. And so I remember, you know, as I was going up in the elevator to meet my publisher thinking like, what would this short story collection be called? And I remember then the title came to me to be a man. And I was thinking a lot of things at the time. So at that point in my life as a writer, I had written in the voice of men as often as, as I had written in the voice of women. So it was a natural place for me to gravitate towards and the kinds of men that I inhabited were often sort of um, kind of larger than life, strong, insistent, um, but kind of perched in a fault line of strength and, and, and vulnerability. The moment they realize that they've been wrong, maybe all their lives, a certain kind of man dream. And I was thinking about those kinds of men and why I was drawn to them. And then I started to think about, this is all in the, that elevator ride, <laughs> tall building downtown. Um, I started to think about all of the experience that I, as, um, you know, 40 something year old woman have had with men, you know, all my life since I was a child until now. And then I started to think about raising boys, which I have two of, um, boys who are on the cusp of growing up into men, and all of that perspective, what it, what, what it is to look at men and try to understand them, to throw oneself into them as a writer, what it is to have lived and loved with them, been brought up by them, <laughs> been siblings with them, been friends with them, um, and what it is to, to, to help to grow them. Um, and, and I just knew that that was going to be the stake in which the story collection um, hung. And I think it surprised me that all of the resulting stories, so I think I had about three or four then, and maybe already two of them were in Voices of Men and two in them. All the rest of the stories almost entirely um, were, you know, became narrated by women. And that, that seemed to make sense to me, given that perspective I had in the elevator right up, that that but I was writing from a place of having spent a lot of time watching and observing men and, and, and interacting with them at, but at a, and boys. But at a moment in our culture, when the whole notion of manhood is kind of under attack and is beleaguered and is unclear, it's unclear what a man is supposed to be now. And I feel that and the men in my life, I feel that for my children. And, you know, I think especially in the wake of the Me Too movement, which was so important, but in its address of sexual harassment and sexual abuse, you know, couldn't really address 
so many of the complexities of manhood and the complexities of what is asked of men these days um, in terms of being strong and vulnerable and sensitive and doing their, you know, portion of um, the work in life. And um, I, so I think all of that was on my mind and I wanted to be able to hold all of that together, all of the paradoxes and contradictions without resolving them, but just to look at them, to look at what that was or what it is to live with that um, as a woman or a man. I was hiking with a friend the other day, and she, she said, I never want to be bound to a man again. Um, and I was looking at my window this morning. I saw a young couple, couple walking by, and I thought, they are very happily bound. Um, in your final story in the book, Rafi and his wife are opening up their 23-year marriage. Um, their hope is that they will find growth. And they, they find that, but they also find a lot of pain and unhappiness. And um, in another of the stories, the husband, the um, older mother finds freedom in a new relationship. And I wonder if you might lay out the story of the husband so we can talk about that a bit. Sure. Um, so I, I just before I do that, I will say that I think the whole collection is shot through with this question of um, the conflict between two desires that almost all of us have. We all fall on a spectrum of, which is the desire for stability, to be known, to be safe, and the desire to grow and have new experiences and for change and the freedom that we need for that. And in the realm of coupledom and romantic life, that plays itself out in, you know, wanting wanting the comfort of an ongoing lasting relationship, but also feeling constrained by it and wanting the freedom to do other things, <laughs> to live other lives. So, so there's the, that moment of do I stay or do I go, and the, the conflicts between one choice and the other are are, are re- really sown throughout all of the sto- many of the stories in this collection. The husband um, is narrated by um, a forty-something woman who is Israeli. Her name is Tamar, but she's lived in New York for for m- nearly two decades. And she has children here. She's divorced. And her mother lives still back in Israel, as does her brother. Her father has passed away. And she and her mother have a very close relationship. They speak often. And in some ways, what's developed between her and her mother now that her father has died is a kind of understanding about the relief, perhaps, of living without a man, as you say, and and, and, um, having certain freedoms from that duty or, or or those demands um and one day her mother calls her and begins to tell her the story of her doorbell ringing and somebody from social services and saying that they have something important to tell her and as the story develops it turns out that um what is being delivered to her is an elderly man as she is by now elderly she's in her mid-70s an elderly man um, Hungarian, some, somewhat new to Israel. And the agency is claiming that he is her lost husband, which, of course, her daughter, and she knows he isn't. He couldn't be. She has a husband, and he's buried over in the cemetery, you know. Um, and although Tamar assumes uh, that her mother is going to laugh at this, it's all a joke, and is going to reject it, 
To her surprise, bit by bit, she begins to see and she hears from her brother that her mother has kind of accepted this new husband into her life. And so there's this kind of new lease on intimacy, perhaps even love that Tamar is almost almost insulted by because it's a loss of her mother, but it's also loss of a certain closeness or affinity or, or a conjoined situation with her mother. But but it also she can't believe that her is her mother being fooled, you know, how could how could this be? Who is this man? Um and this is playing a little bit on an idea that may be slightly unfamiliar to some of your listeners, which is that in Israel after the Holocaust, the Red Cross and other agencies were constantly returning loved ones um, who were still alive and who had been lost in the war, were in displaced persons. They were constantly, though not often enough, reuniting people, reuniting families, reuniting lovers, husbands, wives, siblings. And so this this story of somebody being returned to you that that, that you didn't know was still there is is common there was co- as a common part of that of the sort of recent 20th century Jewish and Israeli history. Um, so it's playing off of that idea. You also uh, explore in that story the idea of motherhood and the different experience that Tamar realizes her mother has of being able to keep a part of herself uh, separate and sort of whole, which Tamar wasn't able to do. And she sees her daughter at one point holding her new, um, her daughter's new cousin, her nephew, um, who is uh, tightly bound with the the element of security um, wrapped well, and that she sees that the daughter is going to be able to be committed and bound um, and happy as she sees that her mother was. Um, What were you exploring there? Hmm. I think there's a, you know, there's this mystery that, each woman who becomes a mother opens up in her life where the moment she becomes a mother and the years afterwards, she wonders how others did it. And she sees both the wonders and the, and the, and the losses, the damages, the shortcomings of her own mother, depending on the situation. Right. And I think one of the things tomorrow is exploring there is the fact that her mother seems to her, always to have had something that she managed to hold apart, despite being so dedicated to raising her children to the husband, there must have been something there from Tamar's perspective that her mother held back as only hers. And was it some affair with someone, with this husband, with this mysterious man, or or, or something else? What was that thing that only really comes to light in the eyes of a grown daughter who has children and understands how absolutely demanding an occupation that is, how difficult it is, hold apart something of yourself when they're still tiny. I remember saying to my mother when my children were tiny that I felt like my mind was hitched to a team of racing horses. I <laughs> had no mm-hmm. control of it. And my mind was just bumping along behind this team of racing horses, which was more my young children. And I think, you know, that, that absolute bafflement of how do you Hold a part of yourself apart that's yours and only yours. And every mother has to find that at some point. Otherwise, it's a drowning business. Um, and I think Tamara had a much harder time with that, or at least from her perception, looking at her mother, she did. And, and, and I think Tamara 
as a woman struggled a lot, of course she divorced with her mother, didn't she struggled a lot with her need for independence and not to be subsumed into a marriage or into another person. And what she sees in her daughter, it may be a little bit, a little bit different from what she's in her mother, but having raised a daughter, she thinks with this, there's this important notion that you don't need a man, you know, you don't need someone else to keep you afloat. You as a young woman at this time in this place are capable of that. She sees, she imagines her, her daughter as she's holding there, happily patting the baby as if it comes completely naturally to her being one of those women who just, you know, has lots of children and lives this long life and, you know, just happy surrounded by family and connection. And who knows whether that's true or not. It's a moment of projection that Tamara has, but there's, I guess, a, a kind of wonder at what it is to be somebody like that um, rather than somebody like herself who has a more conflicted relationship with, togetherness and apartness commitment to a relationship versus the need for uh, the cold clear air that one can breathe when one is free Tamar says what is the good of expansiveness if one doesn't expand what is the good of so much possibility if one only feels it as a widening in the chest while driving down a country road at dusk or when standing still in the rooms of the house when the children are shared out at their fathers one suddenly becomes aware of a silence so pure that it raises the hairs on the back of one's neck yeah so this question of when you fight for your freedom and you sacrifice an awful lot for it then what will you do with it? If you can expand, but don't expand, what is that? It seems like you explore the same theme from a different angle in seeing Urshadi. Um, and, and maybe focus on the, the, the main characters reclaiming their own inner strength and that balance that you just talked about. Um, and the primary character is a dancer. And she says, until one day I realized that I had become fanatical, that what I had taken to be devotion had crossed the line into something else. Um, and, and it seems there's an exploration of to take, to be a part of something. Um, and, and through this story and others, fathers dying, leaving husbands, taking what we need and seeing in the dark. Uh, what for you ran through the stories of this idea of taking, taking what we need, seeing where, where we've been and then taking the action to take what we need? Um, so there's a lot in that question. I'm just trying to yeah, I'm sorry. Unpack it. Yeah, no, that's okay. I'm trying. I'm trying to see. I'm trying to because there are there are some different components. Yeah. So, I think that so so just like maybe if I could just back up to that story. Actually, that story is about um, a much is told by a much younger woman. So well, now she's older, but she's t- t- telling you she's looking back in a time when she was a, a young, quite a young dancer, and what she wanted more than anything was to dance with this choreographer in this company in Tel Aviv and she's invited to do so. She drops everything and she goes there. And of course she finds it as challenging in many ways. And one, one of them being this inner conflict about becoming sort of maniacal about, about something beyond devotion um, and her commitment because, you know, her body's in pain and she has to sacrifice a lot to, to, to meet the demands of the company. And what she does in her spare time is she, she was while she's icing her ankle, which is up on a pillow, she watches 
film. She's a huge film addict and and she goes through different periods and, and, and then she becomes she sees this one film by the Iranian director Abbas Kiristami. And I should stop here and say that I saw this film, Taste of Cherry, myself when I was about her age. I was living in London as a student. It, this was in the nineties. It came out then I guess mid, mid late nineties, late nineties. And it absolutely blew me away. I went to go see it myself and it just haunted me and it stayed with me, you know, in the 20 years since. And I, every time I've been in a theater in the city or wherever I've been, I've gone to see it. And and I, my sense, my relationship with it has changed over the years. But what happens in this story is that she becomes obsessed with this actor whose face or whose presence takes up almost the entire film. And... Um, his name is Hamayun Arshadi. This is a real Iranian actor. And she becomes obsessed but with the notion that there's no way that he could play this mournful person who in the movie wants to end his life, has already dug his own grave, and is just simply looking for somebody who will throw the dirt over him in the morning after he's taken the sleeping pills, something which is, you know, absolutely forbidden by the Quran. Um, and she thinks... There's no way this actor could play this part had he not felt this grief himself. She becomes kind of obsessed by the idea. She goes dancing with the company in Japan. She thinks she sees him. And then the story switches as she tells the story of her best friend in Israel, who is as lively as her as an actress. And her best friend says, oh, my gosh, the same thing happened to me with that film. And then we go into what happened in the friend's experience of it. And as the story progresses, we see that it's really about two young women who are young artists, each in their own way, who are shaped powerfully or believe themselves to be shaped powerfully by the, you know, the, the art they love, the men they've been involved with, the art they love made by men. <laughs> I mean, all of those, all of the places where all those men circles overlap, um, Venn diagrams overlap. And the revelation at the end of that story is, is just the opposite. But she realizes so much later that all of that strength and, and power and incredible life source, they dragged up, they invented, they dragged it up from their own depths, these girls. And I think that that, that revelation, again, is one that echoes often in these stories because a lot of these stories are about younger women number of them are about younger women younger women who are struggling with that sense of where where is my strength where do I find my strength how do I invent it how do I make it up out of nothing where can I dig it up from but they insist on it and one reviewer described the book as filled with strong women and that made me proud because I feel that is right that those are the kinds of women that I'm drawn to occupy which doesn't mean that they aren't conflicted and don't have enormous weakness and vulnerability but that there's a strength in them that drew me to want to write about them. So one of those strong young women is the main character in End Days and uh, it's it's focus Outwardly is on approaching fires, marriage and divorce and, and growing up. 
Um, it says, as if the fires were nearly upon them, burning closer and closer, as uncontainable as all fires that sweep away the old order to make way for the next. And this is one of the stories where the narrow twin bed comes in, um, which which I noticed it did in a, a few of the stories. And I'm just wondering if that was conscious symbolism for you, uh, or, or it just somehow... Um, weeded its way into a number of stories. At, at one point in the story, at the end, it says, and there in the narrow twin bed, she gave to him what she wanted to give and took from him what she needed. You know, I, I didn't notice that. And I think that this is one of the great joys of publishing one's work as a writer is that readers bring enormous insight to you, insight that you didn't have about your own habits and patterns and predilections and obsessions and ideas, they bring their own rich reading to it. So I can think of another twin bed that's in the story, the first story in the book, Switzerland, um, which this 13-year-old occupies in the house of the substitute teacher she boards at when she goes to boarding school in Geneva. And sometimes she and another girl um, sit and talk in it and talk about their lives and all kinds of things. Is there another? Yet another there is, and, and it, it, it I plays, know. I think, a big role oh. in, in um, I am asleep, but my heart is awake. Yes, of course. You're right. You're right. You're right. I think it's, I think it's totally brilliant that you noticed that. And I, I'm, I'm grateful for, to you for it because I think it's a huge insight. Um, and I'm, I, I guess now as it kind of rolls over me, it shouldn't be so surprising, but the difference between the twin bed and the large bed, not just independence and, you know, shared couple them, but also childhood to adulthood and how, you know, so many of us, we are both of those things at the same time. We are the child we were and we are the adults we have become. And I always say to my kids, um, they sometimes um, feel sad when their birthdays that they're getting older. The time is getting older. They're, they're funny that way. <laughs> I guess sort of nostalgic in some ways about losing their childhoods. And I always say to them, it's the only thing that seems to help. I say I, from the time they were little, I would say, but you're not losing, you know, seven. You you always have seven. Now you're just going to add eight to it. <laughs> you know, and you're not going to lose eight. Eight is going to be with you forever. You're just going to add nine. And I think that notion of like, I don't know if you experience this too, but when we love, really when we love romantically, even erotically, we love also from deep beyond that adult back all the way to the child in us, right? We want mm -hmm. to be loved. That child in us wants to be loved. And we are forever that that whole span of our life. And I think that, like, you know, when we, when we sleep in the, the large bed that replaces the twin bed that sometimes goes back to the twin bed, it seems like an accurate symbol, I guess, in my mind for for that. And it seems to symbolize, too, that going back and forth, at least in I am asleep, but my heart is awake, um, because characters move from the single bed to, to the, the double bed. And and um, you're a good parent. <laughs> that's that's exceptional uh, to, to, to give them that gift of, of holding on to all the years before. It seems like in um, Zusha on the Roof, there's some exploration of that. Uh, 
it's a simplicity was not his patrimony. And later on, struggling with the realization he may have led a life misspent. As far back as he could remember, he had known the answers. His life had floated on a great ocean of understanding. He'd only had to dip his cup. He had not noticed the slow evaporation of that ocean until it was too late. Um, and he's questioning this life he led that was guided by his bond um, to his father but all prime, and, and to his religion and, and his ancestors, but primarily to duty. And, and he comes to a point where he believes that he let himself be crushed by duty. And that seems to embrace all of the elements you were just talking about of carrying with us um, not only our early years and our childhood, but those of our um, our relatives and, and ancestors. Yeah, I think that this has been a long theme of my writing and my inner life um, for decades now, in a way. And that this story, in some ways, the spark for it was one of the more interesting reviews I read of my third novel, Great House, was written by um, a kind of academic psychiatrist in Israel, published in Haaretz. And it was really, like, I think a title that was like Nicole Krauss, like, you know, struggles with the burden of, of you know, duty or Jewish, you know, Jewish duty or I can't remember exactly what it was, but the review interested me because it saw in the book um, some of what I was trying to get at, but which I don't think a lot of reviewers saw, which is what it is to be born into some 3000 more years of history um, as a Jew and to feel that that history, I'm not a religious person, but I'm, you know, very culturally Jewish. I grew up that way. I lived in that milieu. Like that those, that demand of that is a kind of demand for a binding quite literally, you know, the binding of Isaac is you are, you, you are bound to all those who are bound before you, who are bound before you. Bound. And there's the line in it later in Forest Dark, the next novel, which wonders aloud about that binding when what everyone really wants is to be cut loose and allowed to be grown free toward the future. And so this, this, this conf, inner conflict, and sometimes I feel this conflict as an American Jew who's, who's had an enormous amount of her life also happen in Israel, which is like what it is to be like American and feel that one can become anything and, you know, the, invent oneself as an individual and, Israel, which, you know, is a new country inventing itself, but also in the shadow of thousands of years of history and the burdens of that. And so what is it to live between those two poles, between, the, again, the pole of self-invention, freedom, you know, the future, and then be also pulled by, as all of us are, obviously this is not only a Jewish thing, just that's the context in which I was writing about here. This this is the case for everyone, pulled by the, our past, the history of our country, our people, our culture, our religion, whatever it is. Um, and how do we settle that conflict, each of us, is a question that I think a lot of my work is shot through with. 
in, in I Am Asleep But My Heart Is Awake, it starts with a dream. She's mourning her father's passing, and she's in his apartment in Israel, and realizing that that was actually his true home and something that she hadn't been aware of growing up in America. And she's in a dream, and in the dream, her tiny father child is really unhappy, and she picks him up to console him. Um, and uh, it's uncomfortable for her, but she says there's no other way. And a stranger arrives, and at one point, and he's um, got a key to the house and, and his single bed <laughs> in one of the rooms. And um, at one point, she's trailing him and says he stops to look up at the tall building they are raising, and I, too, stop to look up. And it seems to me that I could go on doing this for a very long time, um, shadowing a life. And then the last lines of the story, how long can this go on, I wonder? Soon winter will come, the sea will darken, and the rain will fall, leaving puddles in the broken asphalt. But even as I think this, I know in my heart that it will go on a very long time, that I will get used to stepping over the stranger on my way to the kitchen, because this is the way one lives, casually stepping over things until they are no longer a burden to us, and it is possible to forget them altogether. So let's, in just our last few minutes, talk a little bit about, about that story. Sure. Um, the title of that story, um, I Am Asleep But My Heart Is Awake, is taken from Song of Songs. And in my mind, it's very, very much a story about mourning and how we learn to live with loss. Um, it's a story that in some ways is a quest meditation on what the soul is, the soul exists, but it's a story that has one foot in that, that kind of mysterious realm and another foot in a very, very literal reality. And the reality is here's a young woman whose father's died. Her mother died when she was much younger. So, so she's sort of left alone after her father dies and where she was raised in America, her father was Israeli. And even after her mother died, never went back to Israel, so raised her in New York. And she knew, knows that every year he would return for half a year. He's an academic. He was an academic to teach in Tel Aviv. And yet when he dies, quite suddenly, she's told by the executor of his estate that he's left her his apartment. And so she goes there. And, and when the moment she steps in, she has the revelation you describe, which is, that in some ways this was his true home. Here are all the things he loved and everything that her father was there. She had no idea that this apartment existed. She, he never, she assumed he lived in some, you know, faculty housing or something. And so she begins to inhabit it. And so the first moment there, I think relates to what we were speaking about earlier in the story, the husband between Tamar and her mother, this rec- revelation that, we all have as children who grow up when we suddenly see our parents in this new light and understand that there are these vast portions of themselves that we weren't aware of when we were children and that, that, that each person, whether it's our parent or whether it's some, our, you know, our spouse or our children has, has great stretches of inner landscape that are, that are not available to us as close as we may be to them. And sometimes after they're gone or sometimes while they're still living, we have a sudden window onto that and it's startling in, in a lot of ways. And so there's, there's, a, I think, you know, there's a musing on that in the story. And then 
as she's sleeping in the early days are arriving, this stranger lets himself in with the keys and that's literal. I mean, he's a person there and the explanation is that he watches the apartment for her father and that he, you know, there's a leak and he had come and he stays there for a few days when he's in work um, and do, uh, coming to tell me for work. But she kind of won't let go of it. Like, who is this guy? I never heard of him. And I didn't know he was my dad's friend. And who is this person to me? And why is he kind of not going? And he treats her a little bit like his own daughter. He makes food for her. And she has the pleasure of being taken care of again. And she kind of wants to know who he is. And so she follows him one night. And, and you know, the story lifts off a little bit into not a fantastical realm, but ever so slightly, because when there's this moment in the story when he's sleeping and sleeping and sleeping and he won't wake and he's almost like this dead weight of a person who's not neither alive nor dead. And what does one do with that? Right. So you read that end about we learn to step over these things. We learn to live with, with losses, you know, in a sense. Um, so it's, it's definitely um, uh, of the stories and there's, it's one of the more, it, it pushes more on the boundaries of realism than some of the others. But I did that in order to get at something which feels to me extremely realistic that all of us go through in times in our lives. And you, you do get there. And I'm so glad you said he was a little literal character because that was going to be my, if I could call the author and ask one question, question, because I'm feeling like a dope, which was, is the stranger real? You know, are the people on the other side of the door real when, when she's tra- trailing him? And, or is he death or, you know, some symbolic character? And I, I reread it and I'm like, no, I think he's real. So. Yeah. So. Um, he, um, it reminds me of a question that I continuously get about my second book the history of love because there's a character in there who accompanies the main character one of the main characters leo gursky and something happens with that character bruno and i constantly i mean for however many years 15 years now i've gotten letters from readers saying is he real but i think that but even that gets at something it doesn't get at um my dope that's not the thing it gets at it's a good reader who who notices the complexity of that and asks the question. And I think it gets at something that fiction can do that our, our real lives can't do. And this is going to come back to again and again and again, that we live in this reality and we accept the rules, what are taken to the rules of this reality. But so often it's impossible to understand this reality, our own, our shared reality, except through the porthole of this other realm, this other, I think, truer reality to many of us, which is the world of art, you know, the world of literature. And it's only in that other place over there that we have access to, like, what feels really true to us. And that truth then reflects back on this reality back here, where we often are struggling to understand and make sense of things. And so... When you have a character who's towing the line, right? He's real. He's real, but he's not—he's re- not real in the sense that he could be real if he knocked on your door right now and walked into your life. That's a different kind of real. But real in literature and that other realm over there, I think, is something different. And thank goodness it is because it's our salvage, as far as I'm concerned. And and I'm just thinking about all the, the different stories and the different elements and, and thinking about the distinction between a short story and a novel and thinking that, 
you, with each one, at the beginning of the interview, you said you have to land the ending in, in a short story perfectly, as an ice skater would, or, or I'm thinking a gymnast. And, and you do that in every story, but all that comes between as well, like each one could is, is a novel encapsulated in short form because it has every element that um, a novel would have just in sort of more distilled down perfection. And um, I'm just going to read the review by Oprah Magazine because um, from what we're just talking about, I'm I'm in a complete agreement. They say she writes insight and revelation better than just about anyone working today. And so I know you're putting the reviews aside, but I'm just throwing it out there for <laughs> listeners because if you know the, these are definitely um, short stories that are so packed full of so many relevant, thought-provoking um, elements and aspects that are relevant to all of our lives, and I think especially today, and in um, a beautiful, artistically uh, presented wrapping. So. So thanks, Nicole. Thank <laughs> you. Have a really, really wonderful thank book. You. And, and thanks for joining us thank on That you. Got Me Thinking. I, it was a pleasure to be here and a real pleasure to talk to you. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Really okay. fantastic book. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.